0: Well, good morning. Um, Like I said, my name is Rachel. I'm married to him. Uh, If you talk to Rev, I'm the first lady. That's why he... (laughs) Someday I'm going to wear a hat just for Rev. Uh, But right now, here at Third Street, we are in the middle of a series called Unexpected Gifts, where we are looking at all of the unexpected things that God has done for us through his son, uh, Jesus Christ. And in week one, Deshaun talked about... The gift of Christ dwelling within us. And last week, if you were here, you heard Pastor Mike talk about how the kingdom of God is coming to earth and he lives through his people right now. And so this week, uh, this week I've been tasked with talking about how the second coming of Christ is an unexpected gift. The second coming of Christ is this thing that is talked about in Scripture, specifically uh, in Revelation 21 is where we're going to be speaking from today. And so uh, as we are looking in this season of Advent, the season of Advent, if you've never heard of Advent, um, you may have grown up in... Uh, a church that maybe didn't observe the church calendar traditionally, and they may have called it something else. But if you look at the church calendar, there's this time that's called Advent, and it's where we sit in hopeful anticipation and we meditate on the coming of Christ. And most commonly during Advent, we look at the coming of Christ as when he came as a baby, and we celebrate it and we observe it on December 25th. But I would say that Advent... Advent is as much about the second coming of Christ as it is the first coming. And so today, if you want to turn with me now, we are going to go to Revelation 21, and we are going to look at the second coming. So when, when J.D. read this morning, he read from Revelation 21 in verses 1 through 6, and that really that sets the stage for where we're jumping to here in verse 10. J.D. Uh, read from a passage that talks about how there'll, there'll be coming a day where Christ will come again and there will be no, no more pain, no more sorrow. It's a place that sounds absolutely amazing. I, don't, I can't imagine what it would be like to live in a place with no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying when God is here among us. That sounds amazing. And so with that in mind, let's jump in to verse 10. It says, so he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God it shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone like jasper as clear as crystal let's keep going the city was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, I'll I'll be honest with you, the first time... ...that I ever read Revelation. It was when I uh, had first come to Christ, I had become a new Christian... ...and I thought that chronologically was going to be the best way to read the Bible. So I started in Genesis. I read Exodus. I got to Leviticus and I stopped. And then I was like, well, maybe the New Testament is more exciting. So then I went and I read the Gospels and I was like, this is the same thing four times. I don't get it. And so then I went and I read Revelation because I was like, I hear Revelation's exciting. I'm going to try that one out. So I read Revelation... And I was like, whoa, um, this guy, John, who wrote this, I heard he was a disciple of Jesus, but John lost his freaking mind. Somebody took this dude's bad trip and they let it get recorded in the Bible. I don't understand what's happening. And so then I I get to Revelation 21 because everybody talks about the second coming of Jesus. And I'm like, well, he got him from the dead once, so he already came back. I bet he can come back again. I don't know. And then I saw this thing of this holy city coming down, and I'm like, this makes no sense. And so then I just stopped reading Revelation, which was silly because there's only like one chapter after this. But, But anyways, all that to say, John's not crazy. About a year or so ago, I got the opportunity to be a part of a Bible study that was studying solely revelation for an entire year. And so for an entire year, I I studied the symbolism of Revelation and, and I learned what all these crazy things meant. And I learned that the coming of the new Jerusalem was not this like floating thing on a cloud, and we're all gonna live in a cloud. That's not what they're saying in Revelation. The symbolism in this is absolutely amazing. And so in verse 12, when the number 12 starts being reiterated, that number 12 is a number that throughout all of Scripture is symbolic of God's people. So any time in all of Scripture when it's making reference to the number 12 and the number 12 is used, that's a number that is specifically chosen to be symbolic of the people of God. And so when it talks... Here, in this passage we just read, it says there are 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes who are guarded by 12 angels. And then it says there are 12 foundation stones with the names of the 12 apostles. And then if you keep reading down past verse 14, it says the walls are 144 cubits, which if you're a math person, that's going to trigger 144 as 12 times 12. And then we find, if you keep reading, that there are 12 layers in the walls of the city And then it says that the length and the width and the height of the city is 12,000 stadia, which I don't know what a stadia is because we don't use that measurement. It's 1,400 miles in case you're trying to keep track. But all of these number 12s that are given as the dimensions and the makeup of the new Jerusalem, if we take what we know to be true of God and we take these numbers and we lay them side by side, we see that the new Jerusalem is founded on God's people. Every single aspect that makes up the new heaven that is coming is made up of God's people. Anyone who has ever cried out the name Jehovah, anyone who has ever proclaimed to be a follower of Christ, the new Jerusalem is made up of them. The new Jerusalem, the the new kingdom come is made up of us. It's all about the people of God In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God living among his people every single day. He's in perfect relationship with his creation, walking with Adam and Eve daily. And here in Revelation 21, we get a picture that is not just a kingdom restored, but it's a people who are reconciled to their creator, living amidst his glory in a brand new kingdom. Where, as we read earlier, is, is filled with no crying, no sorrow, no pain. It's God among his people completely reconciled. So it's the beginning of Scripture, Genesis 1 and 2, completely reconciled and redeemed at the end here in Genesis or in Revelation 21. And all of that's cool. All that symbolism is really cool. But did you notice who? Did you notice whose names are written? That's what I think is more mind-blowing than anything in this passage. See, what's written on the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So who are the 12 tribes of Israel? Why does this matter? The 12 tribes of Israel are the descendants of Abraham. So there was Abraham, Abraham and then Abraham, Abraham had a son, and his name was Isaac, and then Isaac had a son, and his name was Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And Jacob took on a new name. God gave him a new name, and it was Israel. And Jacob's 12 sons became the nation of Israel. So when we talk about the tribe of Judah, it was the son of Jacob. When we talk about all of the tribes that, del- that, that make up who Israel was, it was these people. And their names are written on the gates of the new heaven and the new earth. Why is that significant? See, these are the same 12 tribes That God got so mad at that when he took them out of Egypt, he made them wander for 40 years. And not a single person who was rescued from slavery in Egypt actually got to make it to the promised land. Because they forgot everything amazing that God did for them. They were such short-sighted people that they forgot that he parted the seas. They forgot that he led them out. They forgot that he redeemed their situation. And he said, you know what, you're not getting in the promised land. Your kids will, but not you. Moses didn't even get in the promised land because he lost sight of who God was. And then as time goes on, these are the same tribes that demanded a king and God said, you don't need a king. Follow me, trust me. And they said, we want one anyways. And they named one. These are the same tribes that started to worship Baal and they worship pagan gods instead of the God who had been God over Israel and God over all the earth for so long. Same people. These are the same people That married people that God told them were going to be their downfall. The same people who ignored the prophets. And the same people that infuriated God so much that he went silent for 400 years before he sent an infant Messiah. And their names are on the gates of heaven. Their names. And as if that's not enough, it says that on the foundation stones, the stones that that are the base of the entire city... They bear the names of the 12 disciples. Let me say that again. They bear the names of the 12 disciples. Now, I thought when I read the Gospels and I saw the same story four times, I thought that only 11 disciples made it out of the Gospels. I thought that only 11 disciples made it into the Acts of the Apostles. The last time I checked, Judas was like that family member that you pretend that you don't have and you don't want to talk about it because they shamed everything and so we pretend it never happened and didn't exist. I thought Judas was the guy that we were all supposed to cast away. He was the guy that, that, that we don't want to talk about. That's what I thought. I mean, when people are choosing baby names and they want to get one from the Bible, I've never met a baby named Judas. Nobody wants to talk about Judas, but guess what? Judas, his name is in the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. The 12 disciples are named. Who are the people that you've counted out but God has counted as his? Who are the people who have wronged you? They bring a negative feeling to your heart when you hear their name. Who are those people? Because as hard as it is to imagine, they are welcome in the new Jerusalem. The glory of God is offered to them as much as it is to you. And so the point of this first section is this, that even the worst parts of our lives are part of God's redemption story. That moment of shame in your life that you don't want anybody to know about, that was redeemed on the cross. The person that wronged you, that you can't seem to find the ability to forgive, the new heaven is offered to them the same way that it's offered to you. That thing that you did that you think separates you from God that makes you unworthy, that's nothing because your name is plastered on the gates of heaven. But what's it going to look like when we get there? Let's jump down to verse 18. It says, The walls, the wall was made of jasper, and the city was pure as gold, as clear as glass. The wall of the city was built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 precious stones. The first was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, agate, the fourth, emerald. Let's keep going. The fifth, onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, Barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were made of pearls, and each gate from a single pearl. And the main street was pure gold, as clear as glass. Now, if there's one thing I've learned about scripture, it's when it takes the time to name all of those things, it's important. And I don't know what some of those stones are, I might have pronounced them wrong. But because I didn't know, I decided that I would check one of the most reliable sources there are, and that is Google. And so I typed in the names of the gemstones, and I looked them up. I'm serious. This is what I did. And so what I found, though, in my, in my bunny trail of Googling, because Google's a verb, uh, I found this video on YouTube that was how gemstones are created. And I decided it was reliable because I looked up the source, and it was some big science company that I don't know. I'm not good at science. And, uh, and what I learned, I'll summarize, I'm not going to make you watch this video, but it was fascinating. Um, what I learned is that in order for a gemstone to be created, it has to go through a very intricate process. And everything has to get lined up perfectly. The elements of the earth, the amount of pressure, the amount of heat, the amount of time, how deep it is in the earth determines which kind of stone it is. And then even to find the stones, there's so much work that has to be done by the person seeking it out. The process of creating these stones involves intense pressure, perfect alignment, and complete submission to the process. So let me say that in a different way. The strongest things of this earth are created by facing head-on huge changes, huge amounts of pressure, and complete submission to whatever process God deems necessary. But the outcome is worth beholding. The outcome is entirely worth the process. Second point, the kingdom of God is a creation worth beholding. It is immeasurable, and it lasts forever. There's a reason that, that the saying is diamonds are forever. It's not because marriage is forever. It should be. But I think our world today has proven that marriage is a struggle. It is the diamond that is forever. And so when people choose gemstones and they decide to give them to the people that they love, they choose them because it's a symbol of something everlasting, like the kingdom of God. So as I read these these first two chunks of scripture, the thing that kept coming to my mind uh, was when Corey proposed. And it's not because it was some elaborate proposal. I mean, it was. But it's not because of that. It's because of the outcome. It's because of what happened when he proposed. So let me take you back to 2011, Corey and Rachel. So I was getting ready to just... Go out to dinner because Corey said, "Hey, we're gonna go to dinner." And when I say getting ready, I'm using that as a very loose term because I tried to leave the house in a hoodie and sweatpants. And my roommate, who knew what was coming that night, uh, looked at me and she was like, "You're a slob. Do you ever get dressed?" And I'm like, "That was so offensive. If you knew her, that makes sense." But I, I was—I just looked at her. And I'm like, "That was so rude." And and I'm like fine. So I walked upstairs and I changed my clothes. I did not, I don't actually think I brushed my hair, I'm not sure. But I changed my clothes so that I looked more presentable. And and then I I left the house. I got in Corey's car, I left the house. And so we're sitting at dinner. And while we're sitting at dinner, Corey's phone rings. And it was his friend James, and his friend James communicates to him that he's stranded and he needs us to come get him. Now this sounds like an extreme phone call. Do not be alarmed. This was a regular occurrence in the life of James in 2011. James had a car that's gas gauge did not work. And so he would just be driving, and his car would just stop. And so probably at least like twice a month, we had to go pick up James. And so, so Corey gets off the phone, and I'm like, oh, where's James? And he's like, oh, he went to go see his mom, and his car got stuck. I'm like, oh, Oh, that's so funny. James is from Barberton. So something you should know, Corey and I's first date, we ate in the same restaurant that we were in in that moment. And then we went to Barberton to walk around this lake called Lake Anna because they set up these like beautiful Christmas lights. And so I'm like, Oh, that's so funny. James is in Barberton. We should go walk around Lake Anna. It'll be just like our first date. And Corey's like, Ha! No way. <laughs> and so... So, I'm like feeding right into his plan, completely unaware. So, we drive up to Barberton, and then he fake gets a text message from James, and he's like, Oh, James isn't ready. Let's just go walk around the lake. So, I'm like, Oh, this is so funny. Oh, my gosh. And so, we get up there, we get up to the lake, and mind you, this is in September, not December. Our first date was in December. So, we get up there, it's September. We get out of the car, we walk around, we start walking, and I'm like, Oh, that. Gazebo has Christmas lights all over it. Do you think they leave them up all year? Because I've never been there except in December. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, maybe they just leave the Christmas lights up all year. I don't know. It turns out that Corey sent James up there and made him string all these Christmas lights. <laughs> I didn't know that. So Corey's like, I don't know. Let's walk over to that gazebo. So I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. So we go walking over. I'm still completely oblivious to what is happening. And so we get over to these Christmas lights, and we're standing at this gazebo, and I'm like looking at them. I'm, I'm in my mind, I am looking at these lights to see if they are put up in a way that never comes down. So I'm like looking at them trying I'm like, these are not on here, like any special way that they couldn't take these down. And I turn around, and Corey is on his knee, and I'm just like, oh. just literally just stared at him, said nothing. And so he's on his knee holding a ring, and he says, I always thought I would propose under the Christmas lights at Lake Anna. And then I can tell you nothing he said after that, because I blacked out. I have no idea if he—he might have said wonderful things about me. He might have said such sweet things about why he wanted to marry me, about our marriage, our relationship, where we're going. I have no idea what he said, because I heard nothing after— I always thought I would propose— under the Christmas lights. And I just stared at him like this. And then he finished talking, and I said nothing. I just stared at him. And so he's just sitting there, and he goes, uh, Rach? And I said, is this for real? That's what I said when he proposed. I looked at him, and I said, is this for real? And he said, yeah. Yeah. And I just kept staring at him. I didn't take the ring. I didn't say anything. I didn't even move. I just kept staring at him. And, and he just goes, do you want this? <laughs> and again, I said the first thing that came to my head, which was not yes. What I said was, that's for me. <laughs> and again, he goes, yes that's what I did when he proposed. I was so blown away, so taken aback by what was happening in front of me. I was connecting all these dots in my head of everything that just happened and realizing that it was all thought out for me with me in mind. I was staring at this ring that was so beautiful, and I could not believe that someone would want to give that to me, that I stared at it, and all I could think was, that's for me. And that's what I feel like will happen when we stand at the gates of heaven. Reading those verses, I just look at that. And, and that's the first thing I think of was when he proposed. Because I, I can truly say it was one of the only times in my life I've been stunned, silent, and had my breath taken away. In one moment, everything just made sense. I was staring at what was in front of me. And and everything made sense. I looked at it and could not believe that that was for me. When we stand at the gates of heaven and see our names in the book of the Lamb, when we stand and we see the beauty that is in front of us, we are not going to be able to comprehend that. We can read the names of these stones, and, and we can Google things and try to understand it, and we can try to mathematically put things together, but the reality is that we cannot fully grasp what's going to be right in front of us, but it will make sense when it happens. And as if all of that isn't enough, it ends. Let's go to verse 22 and see what happens in this vision next. In verse 22, it says, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there is no night there, and all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Keep going one more. That's okay. Right after that it says that nothing evil will ever be able to enter. It says nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's books of, Book of Life. So in verse 22, it says that John saw no temple in the city because it was no longer needed. And then in verse 25, it says that the city's gates are never closed. And at first glance, this sounds like a great welcoming place. But something the Jews who are hearing this the people who lived in the time when this was written would have understood, is that before Jesus, the temple was the only place that people could go to worship God. They had special times of day where they were required to turn and face the direction of the temple and pray. They had crazy instructions for how they were to revere the temple. It was the central focus of all of Jewish life. And then when Jesus died and was resurrected, Scripture says that the veil... The veil was this crazy thick curtain that separated the most holy place from everyone else. And when Jesus was resurrected, it says that the veil was torn so that all could enter the holy place. And so to be told that there is a new place where no temple is even needed That blew their minds. See, this isn't just the Holy Spirit within us that we understand now. This is a place with no more darkness, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no need for the sun and moon because he is the light. And this entire place is illuminated with the glory of God because he dwells with his people. Not just in his people, but with his people. The thousands and thousands and thousands that we talked about in the beginning that will be there. He dwells among every single one of them. And the gates are always open. They are never closed. There is room for every single person who proclaims the name of Jesus. His glory has been been shown to us. His glory walked among us. His glory died and rose again for us. And now his glory is coming again. But the question to close with today is, are you going to walk through the gates? They're freely open. Your name can be written across, but are you going in? The gates of heaven are open, and it is up to you to take it upon yourself and walk in. See, the imagery of the New Jerusalem, this isn't a dream from some strung-out guy mumbling on a street corner. That's not who John was. I get that now. This is a vision that is packed with symbolism and hope and warning. This Advent season is about the unexpected gift of the infant Messiah the unexpected gift of his mercy and his grace poured out through the resurrected Christ and the unexpected gift that after all we have done, after all the times we have failed, after all the times we've turned our back on him, that he would be willing to plaster our names across the gates and on the foundation of the new heaven. And so in closing, no matter what has happened in your life, The gates are open to you. You are welcome to walk through to the breathtaking forever kingdom of God.